All right, everybody. Come on in. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for those of you who are joining us on Zoom. Uh, a couple of housekeeping things. Um, obviously, donuts, water, coffee uh, over here if you need to in between sessions or during. Uh, if you need to use the restroom, there are some right here. Uh, men and women's restroom just right down the hall right here. Please just use these. First United Methodist has asked us not to like round the corner and find other restrooms. Uh, just it will be less for them to clean and sanitize before tomorrow morning. So just use these uh, during or in between sessions. Uh, we'll also have this door to the courtyard open uh, in between sessions. If you want to step outside for a few minutes, uh, you can step out there and hang out. Uh, we'd ask that you just keep masks on and up if you aren't drinking coffee or uh, eating a donut. This is what First United Methodist has asked us to do, and it's what the governor has asked us to do, so we'll just keep doing that. Um, it's good to see you all. There are some of you that I don't know. I'd love to meet you after uh, and hear how you found out about what we're doing this morning. Uh, we have just different people of different ages, different backgrounds. Also, I apologize for this. Uh, for those of you on Zoom, I'm, in, I'm, I'm using an awful terribly cumbersome like 1962 pulpit <laughs> uh, that First United Methodist has, but it's here and I need something to put my laptop on. Uh, so that's what we're using. But uh, there are folks here that I know that are single, some that are married, uh, some that are newly married perhaps, some that are married with kids. Uh, and we are folks that come from different realities, different backgrounds. Uh, but as Westerners, we actually still come from very similar backgrounds, similar realities, similar expectations. So the reality is, is that romance, physical affection, intimacy, sexuality, these are all nearly universal human desires that maybe or maybe not are Western desires. These are desires and expectations that are nearly as old as humanity itself. So just think about like Shakespeare's sonnets, right? We're going back to the 1600s or Greek wars that may or may not have been fought over love or even the Bible of Song of Solomon, Jacob and Rachel, Adam and Eve. These are uh, intimacy and uh, a human desire for intimacy and sexuality are nearly human or universal and as old as human humanity itself and yet western culture especially american culture uh kicked that universal human desire into like hyper gear with the advent of popular media culture uh so from the love ballads that began taking off in the 20s and 30s and then on through frank sinatra and elvis and the beatles and then madonna and then on and on and on to today uh, just think about the music that we have grown up listening to and that even our parents and our grandparents grew up listening to. I found a study this week that found that 67% of top 40 songs in America from, 196, from the 1960s to the 2000s uh, were about love or intimacy. The highest points being 70% of top 40 songs in the 1960s to 71% in the 70s. Uh, what's interesting in that study, though, is that it also tracks the percentage of songs that or the percentage of these songs that are about love and romance that then have explicit or subtle connections to sex or sexual desire. So while 70% of the top 40 songs in the 1960s were about love or relationships, only 18% of those made explicit or subtle connections to sex. 
While 65% of top 40 songs in the 2000s were about love, 42% of those were connected to sex. So the, the percentage, uh, this is indicating like a societal move that we'll talk more about later, that assumes that there is no intimacy without the existence of sex. So from music to movies, like from the movies, that, like the classics that you'll see on old movie stations or something, like Casablanca, to Say Anything, to 10 Things I Hate About You, to La La Land and Crazy Rich Asians, right? Even the Disney movies that we grew up watching and still watch teach us that the entire goal of life is to find romantic love. Like everything else until romantic love is like a holding pattern or a staging ground until life begins. Like even Sleeping Beauty teaches and forms young males to assume that there is some damsel in distress out there and that the goal and quest of your life is to find her and subtly forms even female desire into thinking that you might as well just be dead until romantic love comes out of nowhere and wakes you up and begins your real life. I've often said that the human being that has perhaps discipled me most in my entire life is the character of Zach Morris. Uh, I grew up watching in my preteen years anywhere from five to ten episodes of Saved by the Bell every week. Zach not only formed me in how I would go about high school and pushing the limits of authority with my teachers and principals and in, in wanting to become the most suave and well-liked guy in the school, but in also forming me in just the expectation and assumption that I would have my own personal Kelly Kapowski and then in high school and beyond, that life was life and high school was high school and that living was living because of romance, because of intimacy. And while marriage and its accompanying romance is absolutely a good gift from God, again, much more to say about that later, we have often imported these wider cultural values into the church. And so well-meaning parents begin praying for their new baby's spouse the day that they're born. And then tell their child in their childhood and then tell their child even their adult children that they are still praying for their children's future spouses perhaps rarely or never praying for their child to pursue singleness as a gift often married folks are subconsciously or even consciously playing matchmaker in our single friends lives asking our single friends if they've met anyone lately we don't even have a really a, a good word for singleness. Clint and I have been talking about in the last couple months, like what to call this thing and how to like talk about it. Uh, why do we even call it singleness? Are people who are not married, non-marrieds? Being single is almost always defined or spoken about negatively, meaning the absence of something, the absence or a state of being that is really less than the completed or full version of yourself, the married version of yourself. And so, as Sam Albury points out, books on marriage assume that marriage is awesome. No doubt there are things that you need to work out and grow in to make your marriage more awesome, but you just, you've, got, you've got some work to do. Just make it more awesome. While books on singleness pretty much universally assume that singleness is awful, it is something to just be endured as you wait to become married. So we've got a lot of work to do this morning because, as Sam Albury says, most of what we think we know is actually untrue. 
Rather than allowing pop culture to dictate our desires and our joys and our goals and our contentments, what does God actually have to say about singleness and about marriage? What is actually true? We need a better and fuller picture and understanding of marriage and singleness, of sexual and sexuality and intimacy, and of the family of God. So these are the exact three headings that we're going to be using for these three sessions that we're going to spend time in this morning. The first session we're going to be thinking about together is what is marriage and singleness? What is it? What is marriage and what is singleness? And then secondly, what is sexuality and intimacy? And then thirdly, uh, this later morning, we'll get to what is the family of God? Now, three quick caveats right off the top. Uh, I have been having these conversations with so many of you over the past four years and beyond. Uh, And what I have tried to do this morning is to distill those many years of conversations into like two or three hours worth of content. Um, But if you have spent any time with me around my dinner table or at a coffee shop, uh, you're likely going to hear me say some things that you've heard before at a coffee shop or even from the pulpit. Uh, so secondly, though, I, I am also a person that has very few, if any, original thoughts of my own. Uh, so much of what I'm about to say this morning has come from other people and other voices, from years of uh, reading books and listening to podcasts, reading blog posts and having conversations. So I'm not going to like try to plagiarize or sneak some like awesome, amazing insight uh, into this uh talk as my own. I'm not trying to smuggle other people's thoughts in here and make myself sound smart, but I also am not going to try to tediously give an attribution for every single time I may quote or paraphrase someone else. Um, and, and yet, I'm still going to quote lots of other people here, uh, mainly because of the third thing. The third thing, speaking of Sam Albury, who I've quoted a couple times already, one reason that his book on singleness, which by the way, uh, we've, we've linked this in the weekly email, but this book is phenomenal. Uh, if you, like every single person in our church, th- this should be required reading, Zoom people. This should be required reading for every single Christian. Uh, it is wonderful. Uh, it was so encouraging to me in my marriage and in thinking about singleness. So get this. Th- here's a copy that I just grabbed off of our book cart. Uh, so if you want to just grab this from me after, you can do that, or just go buy one, because it'd probably be better for you to buy one, so that you can have and reread and reread and reread over the course of your life. But speaking of this guy, one reason that this book is so emotionally persuasive is that Sam Albury himself is personally single. He is a man in his 40s who is committed toward living a life of celibacy. And I have not. I am married. I have four kids. So I totally get why it might be your impulse to dismiss everything that I'm about to say because, like, he just wouldn't get it, right? Uh, He can't empathize with the struggles that I am feeling or going through. But one thing uh, that I every year teach 7th grade logic students is to consider the argument and not the person making the argument. Uh, While white people talking about race or straight people talking about homosexuality could tend toward more easily making uninformed or insensitive comments or arguments, we should always be willing to consider the arguments or the positions without dismissing those arguments or positions simply because of the circumstances surrounding the person. Uh, This is like completely dismissing an article uh, because of the publication or the website that published it or uh, 
dismissing someone's argument because of the part of the country that that person came from. Oh, that person's just from Portland. Oh, that person's just from Alabama. We don't have to listen to him. Or that person is just a professor at Harvard. Forget it. We don't have to listen to what he is saying. Or even the party that, or the, the, the politician belongs to. Weigh the content, not where it comes from. After all, Jesus and Paul had actually a lot to say about marriage, and they were both single. I'm not saying that I am Jesus now, and I can speak with the authority uh, as a married man uh, to perhaps your singleness, that he as a single man spoke to my marriage, but I think you know what I mean. So that said, I personally am really looking forward to, in between sessions, hearing from two of you uh, who are single, the benefits and the struggles of your own singleness, and I hope that also your hearing from them will be encouraging as well. So now, the groundwork laid, let's try to answer uh, two questions together here in this first session here. What is marriage and what is singleness? I think it's important for us to first properly understand marriage since we so often, even wrongly, think of singleness as the absence of marriage. So the first thing that we can say is that marriage is a gift. For sure, marriage is a gift. I guess one tack and one strategy that we could take with a singleness seminar is to just like flat out bash marriage, to disparage it and show you all of the ways in the ways in which it is just awful. You don't want this, people. Uh, Just count your blessings and be happy that you're not married. That's one strategy. Uh, But that's not the Bible's understanding of marriage. As I've said in many weddings in the life of our church, many weddings that you have attended and been part of, the first time that God says that something is not good in the creation of Genesis 1 and 2 is when Adam is without someone of like kind. He is creating all these things and saying it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, and then he sees Adam, sees that he is without something of like kind and says it is not good. It isn't Adam who realizes that something is wrong and then just says, hey, God, I could really use a wife or something. God looks at him and sees him in his isolation and says, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he creates Eve. Adam is elated with Eve. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then we read that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And we'll talk about this more in the next session, but the one flesh human union is the closest physical picture and representation of the church's union with Christ that we have. Marriage is to be held in very high regard. It is the means by which God intends for procreation, for the blessing of children. Aside from the church, marriage is, I think, the most important institution that we have as humans. More important than governments, more important than schools, more important than social programs. Why? Well, because when marriage is functioning as it ought, when it is stable, when it is monogamous, when it is permanent, when children can grow into a household where they are formed by both mother and father, when they are understanding and learning to care for others, some that are like them, some that are unlike them, when families care for one another, cultivating other-centeredness and collectivity, Well, then governments, schools, social programs actually become less needed. 
Now, I didn't just say they become unnecessary, but less needed. When marriages and families begin to break down, then governments, schools, social programs have larger holes to then fill to try to bind societies back together. Marriage is a good gift from God, and it is for the good of society. Related, and what I've already mentioned from Genesis 1 and 2, marriage is a good gift from God in providing context for deep intimacy. Genesis 1 and 2 has much to say about marriage and in God providing Adam and Eve for one another because it is not good for man, or that word for Adam, for humanity, for a human to be alone. More later, but the mistake we make is when we assume that if you are not married, then you must be alone and you must be destined toward a life of isolation, that you are destined toward a life that is not good. But certainly, I can without reservation say that Marcy is my best and closest friend. That's why I've told so many of you that if and when you begin thinking about dating or marriage, sexual attraction is not nothing, but marry the person that you can imagine sipping lemonade with on the back porch when you're 80. Sexual desire and even just a desire to be married to anyone can lead to cutting all sorts of corners, making all kinds of excuses for someone's character or even just their likability, making excuses for someone that you might not particularly enjoy. I've known too many friends from childhood, from high school, from college and beyond who married someone because of sexual attraction and the desire for sexual intimacy only to find out that a year later or five years later, they don't like this person and they had actually confused love for lust. They just weren't friends. Now, while marriage is a good gift, both societally and personally, we can just as easily elevate a good gift to a bad God. Because we think we live in a romantic comedy, again, we have been just shaped and fashioned this way, we think that all of life and our lives are a romantic comedy, we can become convinced that somewhere out there is the one. Now, it's my job to go out and find this person. My life can find its ultimate meaning and purpose when I find this unicorn out there. The comedian Aziz Ansari, you might know him as Tom Haverford from uh, Parks and Rec, a few years ago he co-wrote a book with a sociologist called Modern Romance in which he compares modern dating with all of the accompanying apps and websites, whatever else uh, that comes with modern dating. He compares this with the traditional arranged marriage of his parents from India. So today, as he's talking about, we can think that there's the one out there, and we have a checklist of like a hundred or a thousand boxes that this person has to meet every single one of our criteria. And so there are apps that can alert you when you're in a bar if the algorithm thinks that it knows that the unicorn is in the same place. And that we can talk about someone as like the one that got away. He or she was the one, but I just missed my opportunity. Like sand through my fingers or something. When we think that we've actually found that person because the app or the algorithm, like some divine matchmaker, tells us that this is the one, we find this person, you complete me. I can't imagine my life without you. I'd be lost without you. I would be nothing without you. You are the light of my life. Uh, Things that we should only say and mean about Jesus, our expectations could not be any higher. 
on the first day of our marriage. This person is the perfect one out there, and I have finally found her, or I have finally found him. And then reality then shows that there is nowhere to go but down if the expectations are through the roof on day one compared to an arranged marriage. The parents of Aziz Ansari, where two people understand that this is a very strange and awkward setup on day one, but we actually have the rest of our lives to get to know one another, to grow in our love and our committedness to one another. The expectation could actually be not any lower. It's on the floor. And so the marriage has actually nowhere to go but up. Ansari, backed with sociological evidence, finds that arranged marriages built on committed models of friendship are actually much happier than Western marriages built on models of romance. So as I've said before, even from the pulpit, I think, uh, you want to know how I know now in 2020 that Marcy was the one? Not because I found some unicorn out there, but because I put a ring on her finger. And I told her, I promised to her that the only way that I would ever not be married to her is if one of us buries the other. Now, all that to say, I'm absolutely not proposing that we begin a new system of, like, Christian arranged marriages. I'm not saying that at all. But while there would undoubtedly be exceptions to this, I've become fairly convinced that if you take any Christian man, a man who is growing in humility, his love for Christ, his desire to serve others as more important than himself, he could marry any other Christian woman, someone who is growing in humility, her love for Christ, her desire to serve others more, as more importantly than herself, and they would have a wonderfully flourishing marriage. Of course, deeper levels of friendship uh, can come with a different spouse, certainly. Friendship is important. Remember the whole sipping lemonade thing with someone when they're 80? But Christian marriage is built on others-centeredness. It is not built on romance. It is built on Christ. Christian marriage will not flourish if marriage is just a means to be fulfilled, a means to be completed. If two Christians pursue marriage in this way, to have their needs met, to find fulfillment, then they will not have a flourishing marriage. So here's the deal. If Jesus is not sufficient for you as a single person, he will not be sufficient for you as a married person. Marriage is not sufficient to bear the weight of meaning and expectation that we constantly heap and load upon its shoulders. It was not designed to be that. It was not to, meant to be a God. It is a good gift, a means through which we can enjoy God and know him more deeply. But it is not a God, and it will not bring meaning and fulfillment. Secondly, though, if marriage is a gift, not a God, but it is a gift, secondly, marriage is sanctification. Well, it's 100% true that the habits that you bring into marriage will continue on into marriage. I don't think we often give that much thought. The habits that you have as a single person will continue on to be the habits that you have as a married person. Nevertheless, marriage is often a wonderful means from God for sanctification. Like if you were alone on a, on a deserted island you actually wouldn't really understand or be daily confronted by just how selfish you are if you were the only person in existence. Just how much you need Christ. Just how much you need his work and his grace. Because maybe you don't realize just how sinful you are without other people to sin against. Like, I always thought that I was quite a catch for some lucky girl to be married to. 
And then I got married. <laughs> uh, and then I realized that I'm like the most selfish person that I've ever met. And if I could go back in time and warn Marcy, don't marry him. He is so self-centered, so selfish. Now, thankfully, God has used Marcy in my life to conform me more and more to the image of Jesus. And to, prefer, to paraphrase another pastor, often uh, the Holy Spirit sounds very much like the voice of my wife. The Holy Spirit in my life sounds very much like Marcy. And I'm thankful for that. And yet, the reason that marriage can be so sanctifying is because of very real struggle, very real difficulty. Sam Albury says that married folks can tend to compare the very worst parts of marriage to the very best parts of singleness. And likewise, single folks can tend to compare the very worst parts of singleness to the very best parts of marriage, leaving both discontent with where they currently are, leaving both with just thinking that the grass is greener on the other side. Now, I'm not going to disparage marriage and throw a wet blanket on it, but marriage is actually not a a romantic comedy. I think you all know this, but there are many difficulties and many troubles that come in marriage. The relationship that I have with Marcy is probably the relationship that I need, not probably, it is, the relationship that I need the biggest heaping dose of daily grace from God in. Not because that there's something wrong with it, but because we are two sinners that live in the same house. I can be short-tempered. I can lack self-control. I need to ask of her forgiveness. I think about any relationship that you've had with any other roommate and how often that conflict can go bad. Marriage is that now put on steroids. I think many single folks can not wrongly say, but yes, I want that kind of sanctification. I want to grow in those ways. And that's, that's good. That's not wrong. But this is just to say that sanctification nearly always in our lives comes through difficulty, comes through struggle. The other night on our GC Zoom call, one of our folks was sharing of a recent difficulty and disappointment uh, of singleness, followed immediately by a married guy sharing that he is completely exhausted. He is completely spiritually dry in this moment in his life. He is dry spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physically. There are acute new medical concerns in his home and with his family. There is difficulty in parenting and in discipline. There is long and hard hours of work to provide for the needs of his wife and his children. There are pressures on trying to buy a new house because the family is just busting at the seams of his current very small house. And all of that has led to an utter lack of sleep, an utter lack of exercise that comes as a result of all of these things just mounting on top of one another. Again, the single person in this group may have thought, yeah, I'd love to have those kinds of problems. But all that to say that marriage and family is hard. Marriage and singleness provide and uh, have their own unique difficulties and struggles. That's why the Book of Common Prayer says that, it should, that marriage shouldn't be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately, and in accordance with the purposes for which it was ordained by Almighty God. It is difficult, but it is a means of sanctification. So marriage is a gift, marriage is sanctification, but then lastly, marriage is temporary. Part of what I mean, what I mean is self-evident, but a reality in which I think most of us actually don't give a lot of thought to. 
that at least half of all married people, half of the married people in this room will again one day be single. Some are present or future victims of abandonment or divorce. But for the rest of us, we will either bury or be buried by our now single spouse. So we had all, every single person, married or single person alike, have a good understanding and theology of singleness. But even more than that, because God has created marriage to be a preparatory picture of the church's marriage to the Lamb, of our union with Jesus, then as one New Testament professor says, Scripture unfolds, if anything, in a pro-singleness direction. So singleness in creation is non-existent. Singleness in the Old Testament is uncommon and generally undesirable. Singleness in the New Testament is advantageous for kingdom ministry. And singleness in eternity is universal. Singleness is, or creation and the kingdom is actually moving in a pro-singleness direction. Now, I have no idea what my experience and interaction with Marcy and the new and redeemed earth will be like when I see her and interact with her. I don't know what that's going to be like, but this I know, that our friendship will not be lacking. We will not look back longingly to the good old days of when we were married We will understand even in thankfulness for the ways in which our experience of marriage directed us to now, to this moment. And our communion with each other will be even more deeply held in experience because of now our fully realized union with Christ. So marriage is always temporary, whether it is temporary for five or whether it lasts for five years or 50 years, it will always end. And that's why John Piper rightly titled his book, This Momentary Marriage. Marriage is always just for a moment. And so if all that's true, now what is singleness? If marriage is a gift, marriage is sanctification, and marriage is temporary, then singleness is a gift, singleness is sanctification, and singleness is permanent. So what is singleness? Singleness is a gift. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is addressing all kinds of marital and non-marital situations. This would be a good chapter to to go home and read. Uh, Sometimes it's good for people to get married. Sometimes it's not, he's talking about. He gets into a section. If a Christian Christian spouse is married to an unbeliever, the Christian should stay married, should not pursue a divorce. He's talking about all kinds of different uh, scenarios and circumstances of marriage and divorce. And so after explaining why it might be good for some to get married, he says this in verse 7. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, single. But each has his own gift from God, one of a kind and one of another. Each person's unique life circumstances are a gift from God. Marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. Now, I know that many of you would have just assumed that at some point, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 was going to get trotted out here and I was going to say singleness is a gift and you now are rolling your eyes. When you hear that singleness is a gift, you think this is like a gift that I get every Christmas from my great-great-aunt. It's like a as-seen-on-TV knick-knack that just goes straight in the back of the closet or a Chia Pet or something. Like, I would have much much rather have gotten, like, the cash it took to buy this useless gift and to actually then buy something that I would have wanted or could have used. I hate this gift. Sam Albury says this. 
while single people may chuckle at the idea of God giving such a potentially unwanted gift, we need to be careful and recognize what and who it is we're laughing at. God is no fool. To roll our eyes at what a well-meaning but mistaken relative gives us is one thing. To roll our eyes at omniscience is another. If we balk at the idea of singleness being a gift, it is not because God has not understood us, but because we have not understood him. I wish when I was in high school, when I was in college, someone would have put in front of me the possibility and the plausibility of a lifelong committed singleness and celibacy. Now, that's not at all to say that either uh, I regret where I am today. I'm not saying that at all. My marriage and my family is one of God's sweetest gifts to me. Or I'm not saying that if someone had presented singleness as a possibility or a plausibility, I would have actually remained single, that I would have never gotten married. But there are so many days in the month that it's a late afternoon coffee with one of you and but hey, guys, we got to wrap it up. I got I to gotta get back home to my family dinners on the table. Uh, Marcy and I still weekly look at the calendar and say, we've got too much going on right now. We are uh, committing more life to the life of our church than to the life of our kids. Uh, sometimes she says, you are committing more life to the life of our church than you are to, my, to me. I would love to, on a week or two's notice, uh, be able to just get on a plane and go to Guatemala or to North Africa or South Asia more often than I do. Now, again, all of this is not to say, hey, guys, marriage actually really stinks. You can't do what you want. Uh, Just be happy with what you got. You're free. You can watch whatever you want to on Netflix. You can do whatever you want to. Be happy with what you got. That's not what I'm saying. But if singleness is actually a gift from Almighty God, and that he is wise and good, then this is a gift that ought to be stewarded well. If your singleness is less like a chia pet and more like a set of gardening tools, a set of gardening tools, a shovel, a trowel, a hoe, all of these things uh, to be used to cultivate and bring life, how can your singleness, a useful gift for the good of the kingdom, be put to use, not just be put in the back of the closet? For the good of God's glory. It is God's wisdom that he has uh, made one of the most important places of discipleship in my life, that of my children. Where are you, if you don't have children or don't have a spouse, where are you discipling in the life of our church? I hope not just putting that on hold with the expectation of future children. Your singleness is not only a gift to you and and to the kingdom of Christ, but your singleness is a gift to our church. And while I'm overwhelmingly thankful for Krista Valdez, like, busting down our door regularly, like, demanding that she can babysit so that Marcy and I can go out to dinner or a movie, I'm not primarily talking about your singleness as a gift for all of the free babysitters that the married folks now have. That's not what I'm meaning, although that's great. But again, from Sam, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel— Singleness shows us its sufficiency. This is why the church needs single people, to remind us that the joy and fulfillment of marriage in this life is partial and can only be temporal. The presence of singles who find their fullest meaning and satisfaction in Christ is a visible, physical testimony to the fact that the end of all of our longing comes in Jesus. The body needs each other. 
Married folks need single folks. Single folks need married folks. We, the old need the young. We all need each other. The head cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. And Paul in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about all these body part things, he's not just talking about the ways that we can physically serve one another, but in how we can spur one another on, no matter where we are, to greater love for Jesus. We married people, some of us who have wrongly put our hopes in marriage and intimacy, who have wrongly put our possibility for contentment and joy in whether our marriage is actually like functioning like the notebook or something, we need you to show and demonstrate the sufficiency of the gospel in the same way that you might need married folks to show and demonstrate a life of self-sacrifice, a life of others-centeredness. God has given you a useful gift for the kingdom to be wielded and to be put to use. So here's the deal. I think often seminars or conferences or talks or even books on singleness are often highlighting and emphasizing, uh, perhaps even just reduced to, here's how to be happy while you wait. But this is not at all what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 7. While he does make exceptions for people to get married, marriage is a gift. His main point in 1 Corinthians 7, whether it is for a married person or a single person, whether it is a married person married to a non-believer or whatever the person, whatever, whatever, whatever uh, marital situation this person finds them in, the main point of 1 Corinthians 7 from start to finish is for people to remain where they are, for people to remain as they are. If they are single, maybe remain single. If they are married, remain married. Or as another pastor says, Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 7 was not to ask how singleness fits into God's kingdom. Paul was addressing the issue of how marriage fits into the kingdom's plan. Single people are already with the program. They are concerned about the things of the Lord, verse 32. Married people are the ones who need help in sorting out their priorities. Paul's greater concern is not with the single people in 1 Corinthians 7. It is with the married people. So like I've encouraged many of you personally, while your desire for marriage is good, perhaps, perhaps pray that God would help you to shift your paradigm and expectation for marriage. Perhaps just assume. Assume that for your greater joy and sanctification, perhaps assume for your greater usefulness to the kingdom, perhaps assume that you are going to live your life as a single person, committed to serving Christ and his church as devotedly as possible. That singleness is the default Christian existence. And if God interrupts that someday, if you look up and you're serving Christ and his church and there is someone who is doing that alongside you, then praise the Lord. What a gift that he has given in marriage. And by the way, that's not just some sort of like prosperity gospel of marriage. That just be content in Jesus and when you finally become content in Jesus, then he'll give you what you've actually been wanting for in a spouse. That's not... That's, there are all kinds of like prosperity gospels when it comes to dating and marriage and sexuality uh, that are completely unhelpful. We'll get to more of those in a minute. But in changing this paradigm of thinking about marriage, then if marriage becomes an interruption for your single life rather than singleness becoming a waiting room or a staging ground for your real life to begin, then I think our lives are actually just more enjoyable. 
if marriage is the expectation, then like my head is always on a swivel, right? Anytime I enter a room, anytime I come to church on Sunday afternoon, anytime I'm at GC, like, is she the one? Is she the one? Could I marry her? What about her? Could I imagine myself marrying him? Does he like me? I'm not sure. What could I do to make sure that he does notice me? Like, it is exhausting. It is exhausting. For you parents, maybe you ought to actually be praying for the kingdom-minded singleness of your children, not just praying for some potentially future spouse. Maybe not instead of praying for a potential spouse, but in addition to, I don't know. All I know is that we must break the mold of expectation that our culture has formed around us that life begins with romance and marriage because it is definitely not the mold that Christ gives us in the scriptures. And just a quick aside, for those of you who quickly go to the marriage exception, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, because you burn with passion, Paul makes the exception to for those who would like to be married because they burn with passion. Uh, you might think, clearly singleness is not a gift that I have been given because I do burn with passion. But how much of the burning is actually a result of years, a lifetime of unhealthy fantasization, of pornography use? We'll talk more about sexuality in the next session, but perhaps to continue our gardening metaphor, perhaps God has actually given you this tool, this gardening tool, this shovel, and then you're just like snapping it in half. You are hijacking your sexuality, causing yourself to burn in completely unhealthy ways forsaking the gift that God has given you. Now, I know, easy for the married guy to say, but singleness does not require a special calling. It does not require, like, special superpower. The key to contentment as a single person is not being content in singleness. It's being content in Christ as a single person. Contentment in Christ is a calling and very real possibility for every Christian no matter where they find themselves. Whether I have a little or a lot, Paul says in Philippians 4, I have found the secret to contentment. Here's the secret, everybody. Whether you have a lot or a little, whether you are single or married, he says, here's the secret, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not accomplishments in all things through Christ who strengthens me, but contentment in all things through Christ who strengthens me. Your singleness is a gift for the kingdom. Is a gift to the church and is actually a gift to you because God loves you. Second, singleness is a gift, but singleness is also sanctification. Again, I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture of singleness that ignores or glosses over all of the very real pains and difficulties, the very real experiences of when you see on Facebook or Instagram another one of your friend's wedding photos, or when you are again and again and again a bridesmaid or a groomsman. When you get home from work to an empty house or an apartment and consider how amazing it would be to just to have the same person to debrief the day with, to just sit in relaxed security and peace and watching the same show on Netflix. When you desire to be a mom or a dad, you desire to hold a child. You desire, sorry. You desire to read bedtime stories, to read the Bible with your own children. <laughs> when, 
Sorry, I've had these tears with many of you, so, yeah. Um, when even your closest friends or your parents make careless or hurtful comments, good things come to those who wait. Like, trust me, there's somebody better out there. God is just preparing you and saving you for the right guy. Or when your friends make hurtful decisions or you just constantly feel as if you were the perpetual third or fifth wheel. Your married friend, friends seem to go on vacations together. They celebrate holidays together. They go to each other's kids' birthday parties that you would love to be included in. They have frequent dinner parties, things that you would just love to experience all the same. We'll have much more to say and think about in the third session later on, but this becomes emotionally physically, psychologically, spiritually exhausting. And here's where my being married actually loses some of its persuasive punch. Here's where Sam Alberry's and Bethany Jenkins and Paige Brown's and Ed's, Ed Shaw's experiences can be much more personally encouraging. That when Ed Shaw talks about all of the kitchen night or kitchen floor moments, He calls them kitchen floor moments when he finds himself just crying in the corner on the floor in his kitchen. Praying for something that it appears that God is just not going to give him. (laughs) But I can tell you, even though I'm married, that God loves you and he desires for you to find greater joy in this life by putting sin to death. By killing worship of false and lesser gods. By finding greater satisfaction in him. And all of us single or married, must trust by faith that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. That is not just an embroidered throw pillow. That is a very real reality that really trusting by grace through faith, oftentimes through snot and through tears, that through all circumstances, God loves me and is committed to my joy and through my increasing holiness, perhaps even more so than I am. And that he is a good father to reveal and put these idols to death. Paige Brown says, I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband. Nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me. Because this is his best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. The psalmist confirmed that I should not want, I shall not want, because no good thing God will withhold from me. Singleness may be for a season. Singleness may be for the rest of your life, but I assure you, it is God's best for you. It is not a waiting room. It is not a curse. It is not, as Jackie Hill Perry says, marriage is not heaven and singleness is not hell. The desire to be married is a good one, and marriage is a gift, but I assure you, because God says so and because he is worthy of our trust, you do not need it. You do not need marriage to live in contented joy. And in fact, if singleness is sanctification, then it may be a more direct road toward ultimate contented joy. Because while marriage is temporary, lastly now, singleness is permanent. Now, I titled this based on what we earlier thought about, that singleness in creation is non-existent. Singleness in the Old Testament is uncommon and generally undesirable. Singleness in the New Testament is advantageous for kingdom ministry. And singleness in eternity is universal. None of us will be married to a man or a woman into eternity. But that's actually not true. 
It is not theologically true that singleness is permanent. What we considered, our human marriage, our human marriages, they are all momentary. They are all temporary. But for those of us who are united in Christ, we will all be wed to Christ for eternity. And I know, again, you are tempted to roll your eyes. Oh, yeah, at least I can be married to Jesus. But every wedding that you have ever been to is just some small and limited shadow. It is like an imprint on like a sheet of copper that gets hit with a hammer. The wedding that you go to, the marriage of your married friends, is not the hammer. It is just the impression that is left by the hammer. And this is perhaps the greatest lead-in to our next session on sexuality, but all of the longings for intimacy that you have ever had are just a homing beacon that are leading you to Christ. Toward our heavenly bridegroom of warmth and of acceptance and of intimacy and of security and of joy and of love. A committed, monogamous, faithful, and forever marriage and love. This is where our longings are leading toward. And so it is not something that we should roll our eyes at or joke about, I guess I can be married to Jesus. That is what our greatest hope is. That is what you were created for, and that is what marriage is for. That's, this is what we're going to talk about next. We're going to take, let's take a, what time is it? Uh, let's take a 10-minute break. How about 13-minute break? It's 9.57 now. Let's meet back here at 10.10. Uh, use the restroom, step outside if you'd like to stretch your legs. 10.10, uh, we'll come back and think about what is sexuality and what is intimacy, all right? Even some implications for those who might be attracted to the same sex and what that means for intimacy. So 1010, see you in a second.